ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider Podcast. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by ASIAL, the Australian Security Industry Association Limited. ASIAL is the national peak body for security organisations and professionals in Australia, and ASIAL plays a key role in driving Australian standards, developing codes of conduct, and raising the level of professionalism within the industry. As the voice of the industry, ASIAL performs a key role in representing the interests of the industry at the federal and state territory government level. Our discussion today is around the current security challenge facing live events and venues, namely the challenge of sourcing enough security staff to ensure the safe operation of live events and entertainment venues around Australia. Joining us on the podcast today, we have Julia Robinson, Managing Director of the Australian Festivals Association, John Green, Director at the Australian Hoteliers Association, and Matt Howe, Managing Director of Avision Advisory, a firm that specialises in providing advice to security companies around how to deliver world-class event experiences. We'll start with you, John. I'll begin by throwing to you, we're talking today about why it is that we seem to be having issues getting people back into the live event space following COVID. Can you perhaps outline the problem for us a little bit from your perspective and what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously we've seen staff shortages right across the hospitality sector, uh, yeah, uh, including the international travellers, things like that, working holiday makers, visa holders, uh, backpackers, etc. But we've also seen this spread across to the security uh, sector in particular. And largely that's been because some perceptions of the industry and that we've been, we were shut down for 25 weeks since uh, March of 2020 when the, the pandemic commenced. We've also been operating under restrictions for much of that period where um, venues, quite frankly, had you know, 25% of their, of their normal patronage when we've got one patron per four square metres. Uh, as well as, as as other factors, including a statement of regulatory intent issued by government that allowed venues struggling to operate to actually change their security settings, both operating ID scanners, but also the uh, those that had security as a condition of their license being able to operate without their full security numbers. That's led to uh, a number of security officers stepping out of the industry for a time or forever to, to you know, work on the tools, wear fluoro, operate stop-go signs, or work in quarantine hotels that were paying regular and, and high hourly rates. So they're the, the initial reasons that I think had a, a lot to do with uh, an emerging shortage in security. Julia, from your perspective, as far as the festivals are concerned, is it a similar sort of challenge? Yeah, um, John definitely hit the nail on the head. I think um, we we saw across the board from the festival industry, not just for security, but people moving on to more secure roles and, and jobs in other sectors. So they could see that you know um, mass gatherings and and events and, and music and live entertainment in general was not um, was not going to switch back on pretty pretty quickly. And um, festivals, you know, were off for the longest period of time uh, across the country. Really, it was almost two years for some of the states and territories to, to actually come back on in a real meaningful way with no restrictions. So with no with no capacity and, and dancing restrictions, for example. Um, but I think, yeah, just looking for more secure work has been um, a commonplace kind of um, 
you know, theme so that they could, you know, work in, in other jobs that weren't just going to be switched off by these rolling lockdowns and, um, and restrictions. Um, and of course, yeah, my, migration has obviously paid a really, played a really big part with security with, um, with, uh, with the borders being shut and, and with people sort of being sent back home um, and perhaps not, not coming back in a big way yet. Yeah. Now, Matt, I know you've been advising to a range of groups, including um, Wilson security around this kind of thing. What sorts of drop-off in numbers are you seeing? Because if we're talking about rectifying a, a potential shortfall in security numbers for you know live venues and live events, how many people, uh, if you can answer the question, how many people do we need to try and get back into the industry and what's driving it from what you're seeing within security providers? I think it's a really good point. Um, the, the obvious thing, and I think Julia would see it in her sector as well, is most major venues, arenas, stadiums all around the country are now rostering over 30% additional staff onto their, uh, onto their events just for contingency. And that's a very consistent thing that's seen not just here in Australia, but internationally. Uh, I'll, I'll use an example very recently. The Super Bowl uh, had up to 50% of staff not actually attend uh, either COVID-related or non-COVID-related and so that attrition rate is significant. Um, I don't know too many venues in the country that could actually over roster to that to that extent and still not supply enough on the day. And that's that's a that's the growing concern. So wow. it's starting as a venue from a venue industry perspective. Uh, the the key issue is they're starting to actually seriously consider. And here in in Victoria, as recently as the Anzac Day weekend, seriously consider reducing the capacity of a venue because you can't get enough staff to safely evacuate in the event that something actually occurred. That's, that's the problem we're facing. Okay. So let me ask this question then. Uh, one of the, the big conversation points around security has always been wages and conditions. Um, and I, I am told that a lot of people during COVID, when they were forced to go out and find other work, whether it be as you alluded to earlier, John, wearing fluoro, working in traffic management, that sort of thing, suddenly found that they were getting paid better wages for a, for a less fraught and risky job. Is the wages and conditions side of things a part of it? Is it training enough people to get through? I mean, how do we begin to address this kind of thing? Because what Matt just alluded to then is, even if we had heaps of people going through training, we've got to account for the fact that a, a bunch of those people might potentially get sick or have signs that look like COVID and just can't turn up to work. So how do we begin to define the needs of the industry to get enough people back in? What does that number look like? And then how do we address it? And maybe if we if we start with you, John. Yeah, Matt, Matt makes the really good point that apart from what we've seen is, is about, and across the board, we're talking about about 20% down on all staff in hospitality. But then when you throw in um, COVID-related uh, people that don't show up for work or the, the household contacts that uh, led to another group, you could be up to another 10, 15% plus. So uh, that is having and will have an ongoing impact. Um, so look, that's... That's the, the main issue. Security Licensing Enforcement Directorate in New South Wales actually tell me we've actually got more license holders currently than we had in 2019. So it's not about not having sufficient license holders. It's about those people that have gone out of the industry enticing them back in. 
when it comes Although, to hourly sorry, rates. Just, just to that point, I've been told that here in Victoria, we have had a significant drop in the number of licensed security personnel. So it's interesting that we're seeing that difference in the two states. But sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. And, and that's the thing. It's not just a, a, a citywide thing. This is state and, and, and countrywide where, you know, regional New South Wales and other regional parts of the country are struggling just as much to get proper security uh, working in their in their venues and they're having to truck them in from a couple of hundred kilometres away in, in terms of New South Wales and particularly for major events, you know, Tamworth Country Music Festival, the Bathurst Car Races, they're getting security from Sydney. In terms of hourly rates, what I'm being told is that along with other, other hospitality employment types, that the hourly rates are actually skyrocketing. Um, and so along with obviously you know, fuel costs, electricity costs, uh, produce costs, uh, but also your, your staffing. Everything's going up, which unfortunately means for, for patrons that the, the, the cost of what they're purchasing at venues is also going to go up. So, yeah, pay, paying the amount of money is not the issue we're having from what I've yeah. seen. Julia, are you seeing the same thing on the festival side? Is is there a willingness and an appetite to increase the, the sort of wages amongst the festival organisers or is that something that's already happening? I think it's already happening. Um, costs have gone up 30 to 40% across the industry um, is what I've heard over the kind of Easter, the last sort of Easter season, which we've gone now into a bit of a break over winter, which will give everyone a bit of breather. So, but I'm nervous for, certainly nervous for the summer, especially on the weekends where we've got sports um, and festivals converging. So, um, you know, it's not just across live entertainment, it's obviously um, into the sort of the sporting areas as well. Um, I think, I, I mean, I've also heard stories that of security taking on two, three, four shifts on the same day and then deciding at the last minute which which, which shift is going to pay them the most and then they'll, you know, they'll take that, that shift. So that's become quite tricky because, you know, it's not just that they've got COVID that, you know, they're just not showing up to shifts because they're getting paid more on other ones. Um, thankfully, over the summer with Omicron, when kind of this really started to sort of hit, even though we knew it was, you know, we knew it was going to be a problem, but when this started to happen and we got that 40% drop off of, of, uh, of security, we actually were also getting a 40% kind of drop off of patrons because they were sick as well. So um, we weren't kind of left too much in the in the shortfall kind of space with not enough security guards for the, the number of patrons on site because they were also not showing up. Um, but, you know, look, we were, we were facing sort of shortages heading into COVID with security with all kinds of areas, but with security as well, that was already apparent, I think. Um, so I think it needs a kind of a big overhaul. We need sort of a new approach perhaps to, to looking at this, whether it's um, security stewards I've been talking to um, to various people about and whether we have a half kind of um, half security licence um, as such, which is a, a lower barrier to entry for positions that maybe have less, um, you know, less riding on kind of the security of that that site or that um, venue. Um, maybe it's just for accreditation checks or just perimeter control, that kind of thing, um, having stewards instead of a full licensed security. Um, I think we need to also look at how we're encouraging kind of young people into this industry as a out of out of school kind of you know job and thinking about how we get more women and, and those kinds of things. I might be in the wrong audience for that conversation, but certainly how we could get maybe more women into security because I think that sets a good tone for um, a different a different number of uh, male to female guards on site as well. Um, so I think it needs a big uh, like a, a big relook um, at, at security and how we can change them change the way we do things. 
Yeah, look, before we come to you, Matt, I think that's a really important point that you've made there, Julia, because we know from a whole bunch of other statistics that, you know, unfortunately, it would appear from the statistics that the vast majority of people who are struggling to get back into the workforce post-COVID are women 45 and above. And we know that there's a huge number of roles, especially at live events, where we don't need rough and tough, burly people that can deal with this stuff. I mean, bag checking and all that sort of stuff. You know, you might have one or two fully trained security guards at or crowd controllers at an entry point for every five bag checkers or concierge staff who, if someone gets a bit argue, argumentative, you know, then let the security trained people step in. But for the vast majority of the time, the, the concierge staff can deal with everything. And the reality is, you know, and I'm I'm talking about from my own days, having worked back in crowd control, most drunken people or intoxicated people tend to respond well or better to a mother figure than a big burly sort of, you know, guy standing over them, threatening them. So I think that's a really viable solution and one that the industry needs to be looking at. Matt, from your point of view, when you're advising security providers on this sort of stuff, what are you seeing and, and how are you suggesting it be addressed? That, that's exactly the point, um, exactly what Julia said. More recently, uh, as in, in the last few weeks, the uh, the Purple Guide, which is a, a more global, uh, globally recognised guide to how to run outdoor events and festivals, um, which also goes with the Green Guide um, as, a, as a parallel, has been reviewed. And I think what we're saying, I, I think it's probably, it got reviewed a little bit too early personally. I think now we, if we were to look at it in hindsight, and I think the answer is not more people, it's more capability. And so if we change that that lens about I need to be a crowd controller, I need to be fully ticketed, I need to do this and that, and actually draw it back to capability and what we're asking people to do, that opens up a whole diversity of workforce that we have never looked at before. And so that's the advice I'm giving people is throw away your old guides, throw away your old event plans and start again and literally do it. I call it zero base event building and actually go back to what is it that we're delivering? What is the patron expecting? How are we actually going to give that that to them and, and work back from there? Yep. So I agree just for the record, 100% with what's being said here, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. Because the situation that I can see occurring, especially in you know, a society where we're tending to follow countries like America down a more litigious route, is that you're going to get a situation where something happens. Let's, let's refer to them for the sake of this conversation as concierge staff uh, injured. And someone will say, well, why was that person doing that role? How is it that it was safe for them to be in an environment where you could reasonably foresee that someone might get aggressive? So I'd like to talk about how we might address that for a second, both from a liability point of view for the venues and the festivals that are running it, because at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones joined to the legal action, but also for the people on the ground and the providers who are providing those staff. And perhaps, John, if you want to sort of kick us off on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the situation is, I think this is an opportunity now, like rather than just saying we've got security shortages, we need to entice security back in. It's an opportunity for us to redefine what it is security you're actually doing. Under the various liquor acts around the country, venue staff have uh, a responsibility in relation to not letting minors in, into removing 
intoxicated or drunk if you're in Western Australia places, in monitoring a range of behaviour, including drug use and others. So what part of that is actually a security activity and what part of it is managing uh, the venue that you're operating in within the, the various acts and, uh, of parliament that you have there? So, you know, and I had 26 years in the police before I, uh, I moved into my AHA role, role about 14 years ago. And the fact of the matter is sometimes you don't want an alpha male dealing with an alpha male. You, you know, the, the communication skills are, are far greater sometimes in using other types, of, in, including female, et cetera, that, that, that really are more about addressing a situation that doesn't need to be hands-on removal, it's communicating properly. The other aspect of it is that um, if you have a concierge or you know an assistant manager or someone that's that's looking over those roles, then you know they they are directly employed by the venue, so you know what the, what you're getting for what you're paying for, rather than just a security appointed officer turning up at the door that you've never seen before, doesn't know the management of that particular venue or festival. You're actually getting who you uh, are employed by, and they know the way that your venue runs. And that's, that's the front door. That's what people see when they come into your venue. Rather than a, a burly security officer and a very much a no negative attitude, it's a welcoming environment. And that's why concierge or door hosts and others can do many of the roles. And what, that happen, what happens from that, rather, is you end up with a better quality of security doing that, the removals, doing the exclusion or the monitoring that only uh, security officers can do. Yep. Julia, it would seem to me that there's a there's a slight difference between live venues like hotels and festivals because there's probably not as much opportunity, and John might care to correct me on this, but there's probably not as much opportunity to replace some of the contingent of um, crowd control enabled staff in live venues. They're still very much a necessary component. You can enhance them with concierge stuff. But at festivals, it seems like there's a much greater opportunity to uh, offset some of that hands-on security with purely concierge staff uh, who can just be customer liaisons and answer questions and check bags and and check tickets and things like that. I mean, your thoughts? Yeah, look, there is an opportunity. We are still operating under the same liquor acts um, as the venues, so it does depend on what's been built into those liquor acts in terms of how many security and what roles and positions that they can, um, you know, participate in. We've already seen that we have moved to um, using a lot more RSA marshals than security guards, um, particularly in New South Wales. That's a new position, or not new, but, you know, it's it's been a bit of a change. That's not a full security guard. It's a different um, a different position. So we, we would be looking to um, policymakers to work with us on the flexibility of making these positions available, um, not just for, you know, for reasons of skill shortage, but also for a better customer experience for a safer event overall, if we can, you know, bring that temperature down, um, as we've sort of been talking about, you know, if you've sort of got one approach that's very security focused and quite aggressive versus um, an approach where you've got more of a customer service focus, um, you know, we could bring that temperature down, which would make for a safer, a safer environment. So yeah, we'd be looking for kind of that um, opportunity. It is an opportunity for to, for sort of a full overhaul of the system. Yeah. Matt, do you think there's an appetite amongst security providers for a, a tiered licensing system? So we might have, you know, an entry level concierge type license 
followed by a, a you know let's call it an A class license followed by a B class license which is your your license crowd controllers and then possibly even a C class license which is crowd controllers that also have additional skills by way of first aid and communication and all sorts of other bits and pieces where it's like hey if you want the best of the best you pay for the C-class license, but you know you only need like five of those for every 20 B-class licenses and you need 20 B-class licenses for every 100 A-class licenses at a large event. Is there an appetite for that kind of thing? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I apportion it to like the onion, the, the layers of the onion in terms of protection and risk and resilience by the venue, your event or whatever you're dealing with. And as, as you peel down those layers of onions, then the capability that's required changes all the way through. I think this this mentality that a lot of people have around licensing is very much a stamp and collect and everyone's going to have the same no matter what. So I, I recently undertook my RSA training uh, just as a refresher, and that was quite refreshing because the actual trainer was a hostess off uh, that's, on, that's on leave because uh, the aviation sector got stood down. And so it's a very different type of training that we undertook there compared to the set and forget stuff that we would have traditionally gone through. So I think taking that one step back, having a look at the layers of the, the event, the venue, the risk profile that you're dealing with. And to touch on that, I think, John, there's a really good point. We're seeing it in the retail sector at the moment. Um, yeah, the introduction of body-worn cameras into retail because of the types of um, confrontation they're getting. It's, so it's not just um, an event or, or a live venue or yeah, a venue that serves alcohol that's getting this now. It's literally uh, Coles and Woolworth yeah, in certain areas that are introducing body-worn cameras as part of that, that legal protection and, and that personal protection that they're introducing. I think personally that there's a massive role for technology in this space. I'm seeing some really good stuff in the industry that talks, that actually does real-time information about the density of your crowds, the movements of your crowds, the dynamics of your event that allows event managers and venue managers to take a step back and actually disperse their teams, almost going back to the 80s where we use the term flying squads and flying squads to be deployed to areas tactically that then actually help your event be safe and, and your venue be safe. So it's less people, but more dynamic. So I think in terms of answering your question about classification, I think everyone's always open to reviewing that. Um, I think the, the issue the industry has generally, though, is who provides that training? Uh, how do I get access to that? And how frequently do I need to do that? And I think, unfortunately, some of the regulators uh, fall behind in that space, and it will take a long time for that to catch up. I think as an industry, the industry should go forward with the solution rather than waiting for the licensing divisions of the various states to try and figure out how to make it make it work. And I think John would attest to that, no doubt. Yeah, well, there's an interesting point there. And for the people listening to this, we're, we're conducting this conversation via Zoom. So I can see the participants online. I noticed that Matt, when you're talking about body-worn cameras, John, you're sitting there shaking your head in furious agreement. And Julia, you're sitting there shaking your head going, no, not so much. So let's just explore that for a second. John, you seem to feel that the body-worn cameras in venues is possibly a good idea? Look, it, it definitely has uses. It's, it's uses. And, and really, to Matt's point, it's about embracing the various technology that's coming through. Um, you know, down in Melbourne, there's a very, very large venue that uses a, a program that ident identifies different behaviour 
and and they have a rapid response security team that they're able to deploy to that location. Uh, and it might be everything from you know, people congregating or around a fire escape, walking up the wrong way up an escalator, doing drugs. And the, the program, the artificial intelligent system, identifies the different behaviour once it's trained. In area parts of Sydney, they're using body-worn camera. And what that actually does, it has a twofold effect. It actually improves the behaviour of the patron who knows they're being recorded, but it also improves the behaviour of the security operative or staff member, whoever has it, in the way they respond to and deal with the patron that they're dealing with. So, and that's why New South Wales Police also have body-worn cameras nowadays. Uh, it gives you real time, the actual actions of the person at the time, but it also has that ultimate benefit of improving their behaviour right from the start. So it's about using the technology that is moving forward to, again, be part of this opportunity to redefine how we have security. And many licensing police right around the country will just stamp a license with X amount of security using the oft quoted one patron, one security officer per 100 patrons. This security overlay now may mean, or safety overlay, may mean that you don't need that ratio of security, but it's all part of your management of the venue, including RSA marshals, assistant managers, concierges, that actually improves the, the hospitality experience. Julia, help us understand your thoughts on the use of body-worn cameras at festivals. No, I think um, I think my just my personal thoughts were coming through then as opposed to right. my, but also my um, kind of where I went was um, was actually towards police was um, where it shifted that police were actually wearing body worn cameras to our stakeholder meetings that's been happening now um, and they're recording the meetings so that they've got you know it kind of recorded as to who has said what in, okay. in terms of what management plans might be in place or you know those kinds of things and it does it from that perspective it does shift kind of the way that that those meetings are conducted must be said yeah. and that's um, probably not really the intent for which they were initially oh. designed or introduced very um, confronting <laughs> yeah i can imagine it would be but it, it seems to me there's two other parts to this puzzle that you know, it's easy for us, uh, and let me preface this by saying to everyone listening who's involved in these kinds of things, I get that it's easy to sit here and discuss this in a podcast and solve the world's problems, and it's not quite so simple in, in real-world terms. But it seems to me that there's two parts of this that probably need to be mentioned. The first is the drum that the industry's been banging forever and a day, which is the importance of mutual recognition of licensing across states to build search capability for venues and, and large events. John, I'll start this with you. Do you believe that this is an important thing or do you believe that, you know, there are other ways around it? We don't necessarily uh, need to have that mutual recognition of licensing. Look, it's a challenge, like I think, and obviously we're seeing now a number of licence types that are forming part of the mutual recognition and uh, responsible service of alcohol, responsible conduct of gaming will come in the next 12 months or so, um, you know, electrical trades, all those different licences. In relation to security, obviously there's different standards of training, different standards of criminal checks that are done. And so it's there's a body of work being done through the Counterterrorism Committee, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Australian New Zealand Counterterrorism Committee and other groups looking at security and have been for some time. So, yes, there would be some benefit from it, but 
until you've got a national standard of training and accreditation and security clearance, uh, I don't see that, um, that some states will adopt it just at this time. Agreed, but it, it seems that we've got a, a, an approach that we can look at here, which is the chicken or the egg. Do we wait for the states to do it or do we try and convince the various registrars and governments in each state that the need is great enough such that it has to be done? And I'm sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, Julia, but you know, you you would it would be nice to have that surge capability to draw on for something like Blues Fest at Byron or whatever it may be, where it's like, okay. I'm going to bring in people from anywhere and everywhere to compensate for that potential 50% that may not turn up due to illness or, or close contacts. Yeah, absolutely. And this is across the board, not just with security, it's with other parts of the industry as well, just being able to cross border. Obviously, you've pointed out about Byron Bay, but there are other, other parts of the country that, you know, they do sort of need to share stuff across border. And when there's sporting events, as I've said, that coincide with festivals on, you know, popular public holidays, um, that sort of ability to be flexible would be ideal but also as we've seen in this pandemic it'd be really nice for a lot of things to be national but um they're certainly not it's just not the yeah. way that our country works yeah okay and, and i guess just to sort of um round it out matt perhaps you can sort of kick off this part of the conversation do you think that there's anything that that the industry itself needs to be doing to address this. I know, John, you alluded earlier in the conversation to, you know, trying to get some of the, the workers back into the workforce that have maybe strayed away and done other things. Matt, how do you see that we might be able to do that? And what other measures do you think the industry could possibly take to try and rectify this, the current challenge? Yeah, from my point of view, it's, um, and it kind of segues a little bit into what Julia just said there is, um, I believe we've got to paint the positive picture of what's coming. And when we talk about surge capacity and things like that, we roll our, our thoughts all the way back to 2015 when counterterrorism was the, you know, the flavor of the, of the year. And we're talking about, well, what happens if every venue increased their threat assessment and increased their requirements, and we wouldn't have enough people in the industry to be able to fill that. I think telling future story about how positive, um, this space is the venues, events, major events, and, and we're starting to do it. We're, we're on the eve of planning the Commonwealth Games here in Victoria. We've got Olympic Games bids, we've got Com Games bids, we've got World Cup bids, we've got really cool events and things that people want to be a part of. And I think the, the role of the industry is to have people fall back in love with that. And there's a reason why people wanted to work those events or, or work in that in that sector because it was cool to do it. It was good to see, to work on an international touring event, as an example, and that's pretty cool, yeah? And and to work on things like Blues Fest and, and those sorts of things, that's what you would tell your friends that you did. Um, so we've got to have people see it as a genuine career pathway as well and actually map that pathway out for them. So it's not just about filling a shift on a weekend. It's now about actually this will now take you from being yeah, in, in my personal example, I stayed, I started studying stage management and that turned me all the way up to venues and major events. But I had a pathway mapped out for me and I could see that. And I think that's what the industry needs to do. It needs to almost take that hat off this, the general term of security. It's more than that. It's risk and resilience. And there's careers in risk and resilience that can take you anywhere you like it to be. So that's what this industry needs to do. They need to talk more about it. Um, and they need to actually identify the feeder grounds of where these people with that capability will actually come from. 
Yeah. And this final question is more for you, John, and you, Julia, but the, the the final part of this puzzle for me that I think we've got time to tackle maybe shortly today is that I understand that for those security providers who are predominantly providing personnel for live venues and uh, festivals, so let's call that crowd control work, they're just getting absolutely smashed as far as insurance is concerned to the point where it's almost impossible for companies who derive 80 or more percent of their income from crowd control work to actually get insurance. I mean, what can we do about that? Is there anything that you can think of that can be done about that? And maybe John, you can kick us off. Yeah, look, obviously public liability insurance and venue insurance uh, is, as you say, not impossible. And it's actually, it's not just a, an Australian phenomenon. It's, it's actually international. Lloyds of London have actually stopped insuring uh, entertainment venues. And so you can go through 14 insurance brokers in, in say, New South Wales or Australia, and you will not find any public liability insurance. And at best, it'll be a couple hundred thousand up on what it was last year. Um, and that's that's venues with, uh, you know, Class 1C in New South Wales, so crowd controller, security, dance floors, uh, DJs, after midnight trade, there's a range of things. And a lot of those operators are saying they're, they're actually thinking of pulling the pin on that sort of entertainment as a result. So we've been talking to a range of insurance providers to, to try and find a way through to redefine parts of the venue rather than just saying, if you've got a dance floor, you're an entertainment venue. And so trying to have them reconsider how they, they view venues, but also there, there is also the, the option of what's called a, a mutual society. So virtually all the the venue types coming together and virtually becoming their own virtually insurance company um, from a, a, a mutual area. That's that's something that's been looked at. It's probably not going to be for everyone. Um, it's it's a conversation we're having with government, but again, trying to get a fix when this is an international issue is, is pr providing some level of difficulty for us. Your thoughts, Julia? Yeah, I, I concur. I mean, it's across the board as well, as I keep sort of saying, um, you know, festival public liability insurances have gone through the roof. Um, medical, uh, like first aid providers, on-site first aid providers, um, if they want to do a dance music festival, that's sort of actually led to a whole bunch of um, first aid companies leaving the industry in Victoria in, in particular, actually. Um, so it, it is across the board. I, I sort of, I mean, we're also talking with government about this. It's insurance remains, um, it was, remained one of our sort of priorities before the pandemic and it's just gotten even worse. The bushfires um, really, uh, you know, made it hard for promoters who are doing regional events to get insurance. Um, so, you know, weather-related weather cancellation insurance. So I think we just keep talking about it, but unfortunately I think we will see um, further kind of losses before anything might you know, eventually be done. Um, we have seen, you know, by us talking about insurance for COVID throughout the pandemic, we've now seen um, four of the eight states and territories come on board with a policy and a fifth one um, just starting up now in, in South Australia as well. Um, that's for the pandemic, obviously, not for everything else. But, you know, I think it does show that if you just do keep talking about these things, um, you know, hopefully there can be some kind of government intervention. Yeah. And I mean, Again, you know, I'm using disclaimers a lot in this podcast, but I, I'm not a lawyer and I don't have a legal background, but it would seem to me that a huge part of the problem is that 
we're not looking at things like misadventure and contributory negligence in the way that we need to be with a lot of this security and, and live event stuff, because there are these nuisance cases where a lot of, it would seem law firms know that under a certain amount, let's say under $10,000, we can just roll the dice and it's worth, it, it's better for the venue or better for the provider to just pay the money. It's less expensive to just pay the money than it is to go to court. So perhaps governments and, and groups like ASIO lobbying government can look at how do we perhaps change some of the legislation around how insurance claims in these venues work so that it's not quite so easy for people to just take a free kick of the ball and uh, and get a payout and make life miserable for insurance companies and thereby have everything trickle downhill to venues, security providers and everyone else finding themselves unprotected. Um, John, Julia, Matt, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you all. Thank you, John. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day.